Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. The United Nations has declared 2022 the start of the International Decade of Indigenous Languages, aiming to raise awareness of the ongoing global loss of Indigenous languages. Ongoing attacks on human right defenders and restrictions on civil society are critically challenging the effectiveness of these efforts. And here to discuss the state of Indigenous language rights is Dr. Gerald Roche, Senior Research Fellow in Politics at La Trobe University and also a La Trobe Asia Fellow. Welcome back to the podcast, Gerald. Thanks for having me again, Matt. So Gerald also led a report authored for the latest issue of the La Trobe Asia Brief titled Indigenous Language Rights and the Politics of Fear in Asia. He co-authored it with Madoka Hamini and Tuting Hernandez, and it's available now on the La Trobe Asia website. So let's talk about the brief today, and we'll, we'll begin with a, a broad overview on the topic. If you could give us a sense, roughly, uh, how many Indigenous languages are there worldwide? What's the status of it? How are you defining an Indigenous language? Sure. Um, so the easiest way is just to begin with the figures that the United Nations itself provides when they talk about Indigenous languages and their predicament. So the United Nations states that there are about 6,700 languages in the world today. And from those, there are uh, 4,000, which they recognize as being Indigenous languages. So mm -hmm. it's over 50% of all the languages in the world are Indigenous but the number of people who speak those languages is just a small fraction of the world's population. About 6% of the people in the world speak those 4,000 languages. The problem with this figure is that counting languages is not a simple thing like counting the fingers on your hand. Uh, languages are complex, dynamic, uh, socially and politically bounded things. And so what is a language to me and someone else might be different things. Uh, one way to think about it is like counting the countries in the world. We can sit down and count the countries in the world today. We can come back with a definite number, but that number might change over time because the number of countries in the world is a product of historical and political forces, and languages are much like that. So when we say that there are 6,700 languages in the world and 4,000 of them are indigenous, we have to take those things into account in, mm. in understanding those numbers. And one of the important things is, what is an indigenous language and who gets to decide? And this is a an issue that is at the heart of the report and all the countries that we look at, is that the capacity to identify as an indigenous person and to claim your language as an indigenous person is not something that everyone has equal access to around the world today. Mm. So it's a conservative slash disputed number that they've come up with. Definitely disputed. So what's the importance of retaining an Indigenous language then? Hmm. I guess I would slightly reframe the question a little bit. The significance here is not about retaining the language, but the political circumstances in which a community is compelled to give up their language, right? Which is often a situation of injustice, uh, hierarchy, domination and coercion from the state. I mean, there are lots of things that we could say about the importance of maintaining languages in terms of identity, culture, the retention of knowledge, protecting the health and well-being of people. Even these are all benefits of retaining a language. But what I'm more interested in and what the report also focuses on is that typically when a community gives up their language, they do so in a situation that is 
unjust, that is one of political coercion. And、mm. that sort of, I feel, is a more significant. Side of things to focus on, both as an anthropologist and a political anthropologist, but also from the human angle, which is that when a language is lost, it's not just about the knowledge and identity, it's about the fact that people are harmed and often suffer in the process of losing their languages. Yeah. So, is this sort of repression when it comes to a language, is the language itself collateral damage in how the Indigenous populations being targeted. Yeah, that's right. So the loss of language is often one of multiple harms that a population suffers in the course of colonization.、Mm. Okay, so in the brief, you and your collaborators focused on three specific countries. If we could look at those in detail a bit, and we'll start with China. Now, it's important to say at the outset, I think that these are not the only countries that are repressing their indigenous populations. And languages as a result, but these are the three countries: China, India, and Indonesia through West Papua, that the report focused on. Yes, I'll just say a little bit about why we focused on those countries at、sure. the beginning. Yep, yep. So the first thing is is that when we look at the global、um, situation of indigenous languages. There's a tendency in the sort of the English language scholarship to overlook Asian countries. We tend to focus on the U.S., on Australia, on New Zealand, on Europe, and the indigenous languages in those places, which is good. There are important issues to confront with regards to indigenous languages in countries like Australia. However, it's only a small part of the. Broader and much more complex picture at a global level,、mm. and overlooking Asia, we really overlook some very important issues. So, in this report, we focus on China, India, and Indonesia because they are the three most populous and the three most linguistically diverse countries in Asia. Asia is the most linguistically diverse continent on Earth. Those countries make up a large portion of that linguistic diversity. So, in terms of the United Nations International Decade of Indigenous Languages, whatever happens in those three countries is going to have a disproportionate impact on what happens in the decade. And we really need to look carefully and analyze carefully the situation there. The kind of issues that we see in those places are very different from the issues that we see when talking about indigenous politics in a place like Australia or the USA or Canada. And China really exemplifies those issues very well. China doesn't recognise that it has indigenous people. It doesn't acknowledge the fact that there are indigenous people in the country at all. Therefore, there are no indigenous languages. Therefore, they are not going to participate in the decade whatsoever.、Mm. Right and. In a country with three、uh, hundred-ish languages and one point four billion people, the idea that indigeneity is not an issue, that indigenous languages are not threatened there, I think this is something that we have to really push back against and critically examine carefully. Yeah, yeah. So if that's how China is classifying their situation and how they're looking at it, what is the reality when you use somebody else's criteria? China adopts a different framework of than indigeneity. They talk about having nationalities. They divide the country's population into fifty-six nationalities. One is the majority Han nationality, and then there are fifty-five minority nationalities. And China's stance is that all of those different nationalities are equally indigenous. 
you know, indigeneity in the United Nations framework is basically a bundle of specific rights, rights to language, rights to land, rights to particular treatment by the state in terms of free, prior and informed consent and so on. And so when China says that all of those people are indigenous, what they mean is none of those people can lay claim to those specific rights that only indigenous people have within the United Nations framework, right? Rather than saying that everyone is indigenous, what they are in practice saying is that no one is indigenous. Mm. So people in China, regardless of their nationality, cannot participate in any of the United Nations frameworks or policies or rights mechanisms. They're barred from all of those things, right? So that means that the international decade for indigenous languages, nothing is going to happen inside of China. For them, it is a non-issue. They will not take part in any way whatsoever. The question then of are people inside China actually indigenous or not, that should be up for those people to decide. I think that there are many different groups within China who have strong claims to make to indigenous status, but they are prevented from opening a debate around those issues within China or within international forums, mm, right? Mm. And without their active participation, we can never actually know. That There's a conformity aspect of all of this as well then, isn't it? If you don't fit neatly into how they're defining different nationalities, you're pushed towards the Han majority, I guess. There's mm. no support for languages. There's no support for culture. Yeah. So- it seems to be a, a, a conscious effort to make those fit. Yeah. So we have 300 languages. We have 56 nationalities. The basic structure of China's language management policies since it was founded in the mid-20th centuries has been to try and straightjacket those 300 languages into those 56 nationalities and so to actively reduce that number of 300 down to 56. Mm. They're less concerned about whether those unrecognized, unacknowledged languages, whether they assimilate towards the state language of Mandarin Chinese or whether they assimilate towards something else, so long as they assimilate, so long as they disappear, so long as they are no longer there. That's the only priority that the Chinese state has. So in Tibet, where I did my research, some languages are shifting towards Mandarin Chinese, others are shifting towards Tibetan. Mm. Either of those things is fine for the state, so long as those languages cease to be there in the future. Okay, okay. But honestly, that's a generational effort, but it's going to happen. Yeah. So that policy, if you like, of not recognizing those languages and hoping that they disappear, that policy has been there since the founding of the People's Republic of China in 1949. Mm. And we are now starting to see that policy take effect because there has been enough of an intergenerational lag. Sociolinguistic studies comparatively around the world suggest that typically it takes a, a three-generation pattern to shift the languages away from like people's heritage language to a state-mandated language. Mm. And so if you think about 1949 until today, we're within that third generation now, and that language shift is happening. We see it right across Tibet, for example, where all of the languages that the state refuses to recognize are losing speakers. Children are no longer learning the language. And this is kind of like the key indicator that that language is going to be 
potentially lost in the future is that children are no longer learning it, that transmission of the language across generations is breaking down. Mm. The way that that happens, the way that children stop learning the language is not by some kind of draconian policy where a representative of the government turns up in the household and prevents parents from speaking the language to the children. It's typically engineered through public institutions like education. So all of those languages that the state refuses to recognize are excluded on principle and in practice from schools. So you can't go into any classroom anywhere in China and hear one of those languages. And so parents then make a very rational and compassionate decision to do the best that they can for their children, which is to speak to them in the language that they're going to hear in the classroom to make their life easier so that they don't have to turn up into a classroom and try and learn in a language that they don't already know, mm. right? Which is the experience of the parents' generation. Yeah, where they, yeah. they didn't understand the state language. They turned up in the classroom. They had to try and learn from day one in a language that no one was going to teach them, right? And so those parents now want to spare their children that suffering. So they speak to their children in the state language, the children grow up knowing nothing but that language. Mm. Right? That's how it happens. Education is a really key institution for engineering people's private linguistic behaviours in the home across generations. Yeah. So you said that that's a process that's been going on since 1949 when the People's Republic of China was established. You can almost say that by reflection, what's happening in India is it more at the start of that process where language and Indigenous peoples seem to be being repressed since the Modi government Mm -hmm. came to power, since the BJP took over. There seems to be a lot more conflict and promotion of the Hindu majority Mm. in particular. Yeah, so I like there are important parallels between the India and the Chinese case that we don't usually consider because one is authoritarian, one is democratic. But they were both founded at the same time. They both have post-colonial states in that they are built on the ruins of someone else's empire. This is true in both of those cases. Mm. And they have both sort of inherited that empire and refused to renegotiate its territories. They've refused to renegotiate its borders. They have defended them violently whenever necessary. So I would say the roots of linguistic assimilation in India today, like those in China, go back to the founding of the modern Indian state. And what we've seen in both countries in recent years, though at different times, is an intensification of that state-led project of the assimilation of indigenous people. So in China, that intensification really goes back a decade or, or more. But in India, it's a little more recent. It really intensifies starting from 2014 when Modi is elected, but particularly from 2019 when he was Mm re-elected and the BJP government then really had a mandate to intensify the project of Hindu nationalism that it ran on and that it had sort of been instituting progressively from 2014 to 2019. From 2019, things really deteriorate very badly, very fast. To give a couple of indicators of how we know that we're in a bad situation, there's a couple of different organizations and indicators that suggest this. So for example, Civicus Monitor is an organization that monitors global civil society. 
and they sort of rank countries on a year-by-year basis according to how much freedom they allow for civil society, Mm -hmm. right? I think twice a year they release a watch list of countries of concern. India was on the watch list this year because of developments that had taken place in 2021 alongside countries like Russia, to give you an an example of the kind of company that India is seen to be keeping in terms of their openness to civil society. Another indicator is a project called VDEM in Sweden, which monitors the varieties of democracy around the world. I think it was 2021, they reclassified India to an electoral authoritarian state rather than uh, electoral democracy. Okay. Another one is Freedom House in the US, which monitors and assesses and measures the extent of democracy in individual countries around the world. They classify countries as free, partly free, or unfree. And they recently downgraded India from free to a partly free country because of the decline in sort of democratic performance over the last couple of years. So what's happening to prompt all this reclassification then? What in particular is happening to repress indigenous populations? Yeah, so basically what we see is an imposition of a cultural nationalist program backed up by an increasingly muscular state. So a state that's muscular both legally and in terms of its... uh, It's got a mandate. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So like there's been important legal changes recently, which have really restricted the space for civil society, including indigenous activism. So one of them is this law, the Unlawful Activities Prevention Act, which is essentially an Indian anti-terrorist law. And that law... It goes back quite a while, but when it was originally formulated, it could only be used to target and criminalize the actions of particular groups, right? So militant organizations, NGOs, etc. It was amended in 2019 to be able to target individuals. So pretty much straight after the re-election of the Modi government, they revised this law so that individuals could be essentially targeted as terrorists and anti-state actors and legally attacked because of this. And then very soon after that legal change, there was a case where I think it's 18 different academics who were also activists were arrested and charged under this law. One of the people who was arrested was a language and language rights scholar, Honey Babu. He is still in prison and has been so for two years. One of the other activists who was arrested died in prison. And a second change that has happened legally is a law around essentially the way that civil society is financed. So there was a modification to an existing civil society law, which put up barriers between essentially international funding and local organizations. Yeah. So that money used to come in, go to country offices of transnational organizations and then be distributed out to their grassroots. And that kind of essential link has been severed and then has been used to criminalize the activities of international NGOs. So for example, Amnesty International basically can no longer operate within... India. Mm. And so they've used that to attack a number of NGOs and basically cut off that essential link across borders that enables like not just money, but also 
ideas and campaigns and things like this to flow. And if you think about the United Nations Decade of Indigenous Languages, it's designed to promote exactly that kind of connectivity. It is supposed to put activists in different countries in direct contact with each other to share experiences, to share understandings and analysis of the challenges they face, to share the solutions that they have independently generated in their own locations, right? And to give that real sort of like boost to Indigenous language activism everywhere around the world. And India has essentially said that they will not allow that. They have essentially outlawed that. So while what's happening in China is a direct targeting almost of indigenous populations, this seems to be collateral damage against anybody who might uh, criticise or outside interference the government. I think in both cases, there's an element of both collateral and direct targeting. The state in both cases in India and China has become increasingly assertive in the past decade and a half. Mm. Right. And the project is always to increase the state's power. In both India and China, that's what they're trying to do. Consolidate state power, increase their standing in international power hierarchies. That's the goal in both cases. And in both cases, indigenous people are collateral damage of that project, but they're also targeted directly as threats to state power mm. on the domestic level. Yeah. Right. I don't quite think collateral is the right word. They're deliberately being targeted and repressed in order to build state okay, power. So it's, it's being weaponized then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Lastly, your report focused on Indonesia, in particular West Papua, which is home to over 250 documented languages, and I'm sure there's many more than that number, which is embroiled in a independence movement. Mm-hmm. And This example surprised me quite a lot because, one, it's Australia's own backyard and we don't hear about it. Mm -hmm. We don't hear what's going on. And Indonesia is considered to be, while a new democracy, quite a good democracy in the region. Yep. In terms of the different international assessments of the civil society and democratic standing of the three states, China, India and Indonesia, Indonesia is supposedly the best performing the most relatively free and relatively democratic of the three countries. The least worst. The least worst. It is absolutely the winner of the least worst prize amongst these three. But again, that's really questionable when you look particularly at the case of West Papua. West Papua became part of Indonesia in the mid-20th century as a part of that decolonization process that also is the context for the birth of India and China. So like the historical roots of this situation are are similar. Mm. There was a referendum held in West Papua. At the time, it was a Dutch colony and they were voting essentially on Indonesian integration or independence. Now, as the events going on right now in places like Donbass remind us, a referendum on integrating into a larger state is not necessarily always a legitimate reflection of what people actually want. And this was certainly the case in West Papua, where people were subject to harassment, intimidation, and torture to ensure that the vote came out in favor of Indonesia. Mm. This was a UN-sponsored referendum, right? So the international community essentially stood by and not just allowed this to happen, but actively facilitated this territory being integrated into the Indonesian state. The relationship then between Indonesia and West Papua from that time on, is fundamentally a colonial relationship, 
right? And it mirrors the settler colonialism that was practiced in other parts of the world, the settler colonialism that gave rise to the modern Australian state, to New Zealand, the USA and Canada and so on. So one of the policies that the Indonesian government is pursuing in West Papua that actively threatened the languages and the people of the region is mass resettlement. So relocation programs to take people from other parts of Indonesia and settle them in in West Papua so that now something like over 50% of the population is non-Papuan peoples from other places in Indonesia. And there's this simple like demographic engineering technique to dominate the West Papuan populations. So what are some of the actions then that can be taken to support Indigenous languages and their speakers? I mean, the fundamental thing that really has to change in all of those countries is that the states have to start behaving differently towards Indigenous people. Less repressive, more open, greater freedom, greater respect for their rights, greater acknowledgement of their status as Indigenous people. Those are the basic things which have to change if there's going to be a chance for these Indigenous languages in those countries to survive the other side of the decade. That doesn't mean, however, that people listening to this can't affect change. There are a number of avenues through which they can affect change, right? So one of them, use the platform that you have to speak freely, to speak about these things, right? So to learn about them, to use your voice, to use social media, to use your everyday conversations, to help raise awareness that these situations exist, right? That these languages exist, that they are threatened, that they can't defend themselves in the context of really intense state violence, right? And increasing awareness, increasing understanding is an important part of generating momentum towards political change that needs to happen. But that political change is going to be created by organizations higher up the chain putting pressure on those states. So there's really, I think, two avenues through which that pressure can be brought to bear on those states. One is through other governments putting pressure on China, India, and Indonesia. So countries like Australia putting pressure on those governments in forums like the United Nations and the Universal Periodic Review on Human Rights Performance, right? The problem with that is that Australia equally has a horrific performance on protecting indigenous languages. It's very easy for them just to, for countries like China to just turn around and say like, why don't you mind your own business? Right. And because like we should also be minding our own business. So like a really critical thing to do is not just put pressure on other countries, but also to improve the status of indigenous languages here in Australia, right? To lead by example. This is extremely important. But the second group of sort of higher level organizations that can put pressure on all of those countries is international human rights organizations. So I'm thinking about Human Rights Watch. I'm thinking about Amnesty International, these kind of international organizations. Their campaigning in the past has been repeatedly effective in modifying state behavior. We know that they are effective organizations in getting states to respect human rights. The problem is that those large international human rights organizations typically don't advocate for language rights. They focus on more individual rights, like 
cases of imprisonment or torture or the killing of individual people. And they have traditionally not focused on campaigning around things like language, which they see as being harder to campaign around. Like if someone shoots someone, you can point to the person with the smoking gun in their hand and say that this person should be punished. Mm. But when a language is being suppressed over the course of multiple generations through this slow-moving process of shift, it's really hard to campaign around that and to point a figure and say who's responsible for it, to name, shame, and blame, right? It's really hard to do that. But these organizations, they've got 10 years to figure that out, and they need to figure out a way to campaign around language issues and to put pressure on states to do better or else you know we're going to get to the end of this century with far fewer languages than we started with and those 4000 indigenous languages we're probably not going to get to the end of the century with any of those languages still being transmitted across generations unless somehow someone somewhere figures out how to intervene in the behavior of states like China, India and Indonesia right and i really think it's preferable that it's organizations like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. It's preferable that they do it rather than, you know, the USA taking it upon themselves to invade someone, which seems to be how they like to solve problems. Mm-hmm. Which isn't going to be something that happens for these reasons anyway. Well, I mean, this is the thing. When it suits a state, they can use languages and language rights as a justification. This is how Russia justified the invasion of Ukraine, right? They said that the language rights of Russian-speaking Ukrainians were not being respected in Donbass. And so they had to go in there and do this special military operation. It's heinous, monstrous. So lastly, behind the scene facts of this report is that you and your co-authors, Tooting and Madoka, are all writing about countries that aren't of your origin. And that's by design. And that was by necessity, I think. So can you talk about that a bit and the challenges that Indigenous research has and how that's been factored into this report? Sure. Like, I'll just start off talking about my own experience and reasoning behind this, which is that, you know, I've been writing about China and Tibetan issues in China for more than a decade now. And Throughout most of that time, I have been trying to ensure that I collaborate with Tibetan scholars as much as possible. So a lot of my work has been co-authored. And that's become impossible under the conditions that we now have within China. But it's also becoming possible as I've become increasingly critical. The more I've attempted to draw attention to things like oppressive language policies and human rights violations, the harder it has been for me to find collaborators inside China who can put their name to an article on those topics, right? Because they face real-world, everyday consequences. They are invited for tea, which means interrogated by the police. They have pressure put on their families. They have pressure put on their jobs and so on. The situation is kind of similar in India and Indonesia now. It would have been very hard for me to find collaborators in those contexts who could write openly about these things without putting themselves in danger. So the approach that I decided to take was to work with two other scholars, Madoka and Tuting, who both have a good approach to these issues, which is that they're both invested in looking at 
the colonial roots of contemporary language oppression, and they're both interested in human rights approaches and aligning them with a colonial approach. Mm. We all worked together on this project from that shared background and shared understanding of the political drivers of what's called language endangerment. But we all looked at countries that are not the places where we have conducted field work. And we all drew on a common set of data to provide our interpretations so that our interpretations would kind of align with one another to some extent. But it's hard to imagine how this report could have been written by people from those three countries without putting them at risk. And so we decided to prioritize security and safety over that kind of local insight that I do feel is really important, but we're increasingly in the situation where we have to make this kind of trade-off. It's a different manifestation of repression, though, when you don't think that you've got the academic freedom to speak out about these countries if you're living there. Yeah, there's a real direct pipeline between state repression and academic freedom. No state agent had to step up and say that we weren't allowed to write about these things. Better self-censoring. Yeah, there's a fine line between self-censorship and care of others and self-care as well. Mm. This is another manifestation then, I suppose, of something that is going to be damaging to Indigenous languages if an academic in their own country can't study the languages of their own country and can't advocate for them and document them. It's going to put it at a disadvantage yet again. Yeah, I think like research should be playing a key role in the way that the decade is carried out. You know, not just the linguistic research of what does the language sound like, how does its grammar work, can we get a dictionary and so on, but You know, I've worked for many years now in this uh, interdisciplinary field of language revitalization, which brings together the, the linguistics and the anthropology and the sociology and the politics of language to figure out how we can better support indigenous and minoritized and endangered languages. And people in these countries can't do that research. They can't do that work. They can't carry out kind of little social experiments on how to better support communities. And We need that work. We need that practical experimentation with different techniques. And we need as many people as possible to be engaging in that research and reflecting on what works and what doesn't and sharing their results. And without people in those countries being able to contribute to that worldwide effort, we're less likely to find things that are going to be relevant to people in those countries, I think. Mm. Gerald Roche, thank you for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and a multitude of other podcasty platforms. You can follow Gerald on Twitter. He is at G Joseph Roche. And you can follow La Trobe, Asia on Twitter. We are at La Trobe, Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.